Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist. I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, and policy. Today, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Pamela Coons from Yale Cancer Center. She is a world-renowned GI oncologist and the director of the GI oncology program at Yale. She is a world-renowned expert, not only in all GI oncology, but specifically in neuroendocrine tumors. Pam visited my uh, older show, Outspoken Oncology, when we spoke about her experience when she was at Stanford and she was the victim of uh, gender disparity and gender harassment, if you will, was mainly verbal harassment. And she really outlined all of that in my prior episode on outspoken oncology. Uh, but at the time, she had just moved to Yale from Stanford, and we, she was just starting to develop the GI oncology program. And she promised me, and she is fulfilling her promise by coming back on this show, to talk about the progress that she has done on the academic front in the GI oncology program, as well as the neuroendocrine tumor uh, program. In addition, she is heavily involved in diversity, inclusion, and equity as part of Yale's efforts to improve on these particular items. And we are gonna catch up on that and understand uh, what she is doing on that front. So I'm really very grateful to host Dr. Pamela Coons on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Um, she's just an amazing human being, amazing individual, great physician and researcher, and uh, a true voice that I am honored to have her on the show. By the way, before we air the episode that I taped with Dr. Pamela Coons on June 18, 2021, I need to plug the show. So find the show somewhere. Subscribe, rate, review. Also, refer a friend or a colleague. By the way, you can watch all of these shows on my YouTube channel, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Without further ado, Dr. Pamela Coons on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Okay, well, I am really pleased and thrilled to have uh, Dr. Pamela Coons on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Uh, Dr. Coons did visit uh, with us on my other older podcast, uh, Outspoken Oncology, when she just had uh, moved from the West Coast all the way to Yale mid-pandemic. She just basically just got everything on and, you know, so right. we, we wanted to bring her back a year later or almost a year later to talk about the science, what she's been up to um, at Yale, and uh, just to uh, catch up on academic science as well as, 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 well as uh, uh, I would say, social science or policy science kind of thing. So Pam, welcome back. Very, very happy to have you. Um, a big fan of you on uh, social media and what, uh, what you uh, and follow your work uh, you know, uh, from afar. But uh, just for listeners, a little bit about you, and um, uh, so at least they know who, who they're listening to. Thanks, Shadi. So happy to be back. Um, so I am the director of the Center for Gastrointestinal Cancers at Yale. And, um, and in fact, I think my title has officially changed since I la last met with you because we launched our center in, I think, February or March of this year. So that was one of my tasks on arriving. So I've successfully launched it, which is exciting. 
Um, so we can talk about that a little bit. And then I'm also the Vice Chief of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Medical Oncology at Yale. Okay, well, excellent. So, so check mark on task number one, right? The, the... Yeah. So tell us about that center a little bit. Like what's the academic mission or um, what you aspire this to be in the next couple of years? Yes, absolutely. So this is actually, um, these centers are a Yale Cancer Center-wide initiative to um, launch disease centers across all of our diseases. And I think one of the unique, unique aspects at Yale is that we have a number of community care centers across the state of Connecticut. So this is actually a system network-wide initiative for GI cancers to really bring together MedOnc, RadOnc, SurgeOnc across our network and really think about broad initiatives around research, patient care, and education. So, so we had all the puzzle pieces. We had a GI cancer program, but it's really thinking bigger than that and trying to look at where are patients getting care? What do we need to provide to them kind of in the patient care realm? From a research perspective, we um, in our Yale network can do clinical trials at many of our locations across the network, but it's being strategic about which clinical trials, what is our catchment area, what do we need to be doing, what diseases may be more prevalent in the state of Connecticut, et cetera. And then educational initiatives, both in terms of patient care, CME activities. And so it's been really fun to think about that. So I have a leadership cabinet. Um, I have a scientific director that's helping me and um, really stakeholders that really contribute to all of these different missions for GI cancers in the leadership cabinet. And then under that umbrella, we are focusing on developing four disease-specific programs, hopefully more later, but we're focusing on pancreas cancer, colorectal cancer, advanced hepatobiliary, and neuroendocrine tumors. How big is the network uh, across the state of Connecticut? So we have 15 care centers. So these are separate facilities. We have also some other hospital systems within the Yale New Haven system. 50% of patients with cancer in the state of Connecticut make it through the Yale system at some point. So we actually have broad reach through the state of Connecticut. Right. But, but your idea of creating the center is you want to kind of standardize some of the. So if I was seen by you in the main campus, I get the same recommendation as if I was 50 miles away. That's right. So I'd say from the patient care standpoint, it's the same signature care. That's the intent throughout. So what that means is having, you know, regular meetings to talk about that and, and do some standardization. So in fact, just today we had a meeting, we're talking about multidisciplinary care throughout the network and, and implementing that and how do we make that work. And geographically, you know, there's some differences in where we're all located and we're trying to be, I think one silver lining of the pandemic has taught us that we can be creative with telehealth, creative with having Zoom meetings that bring these people together in, in different geographic locations. Um, so I think we're still really at the beginning of implementing some of, of what we'd like to do, but I think we have you know, great buy-in from all of our different stakeholders. And it's, I think, as you know, in an academic system, the goal also of this is to really break down some of those walls in the academic matrix yeah. so between hospitals, school of medicine, cancer center, et cetera. But I really like what you said, because I think one of the, you know, 
one of the issues is many patients are just unable to always travel and see the you know, the, the key experts at large academic sites. So I think bringing the expertise to them is really important. But as I was listening to you, I was wondering, that, do you feel that this will, be, will require having specialized oncologists in the community, or do you think general oncologists with some academic flavor to understand what's going on? So we already have that to some degree. So our, our care center system has been in place now for many years. And many of our care center physicians self-identify with a specific disease center. So um, that may mean that they are you know, a general oncologist 50% of the time, but then 50% of their patients are GI cancer patients. Right. And so, so I think in some are more focused than that, and some may be a little bit less focused, but they still have a home in a disease center. And I think the goal is to provide education and some consistency. So one example of that, we started um, a, a seminar series that we meet weekly and we have a journal club, a scientific, two scientific talks per month and a more clinically focused talk per month and are also starting to invite some of our industry partners to have conversations around pipeline and investigator initiated and other scientific opportunities. I think really the the culture of collaboration and between academia, community, and industry is hopefully going to really lead to improved patient access and and care. And then you said the there are the four areas are pancreas, neuroendocrine tumor, colorectal, colorectal and advanced hepatobiliary, so metastatic HCC cholangio. So so did you choose those? based on their prevalence in your community, in the state, like for example, you know, I don't know, like there's no upper GI cancer or, or stomach there cancer. There isn't, right, there isn't yet. Oh, okay. Um, it's, you know, I think we picked these based on um, local expertise at this point and, and where we already have some traction. So our pancreas program has already actually been um, quite successful in bringing folks together, both on the basic and translational side and the clinical side. We do actually have in the state of Connecticut, a higher incidence for pancreas cancer than the U.S. seer population. So we accrue well to pancreas trials. So that was a really high priority. I would say, you know, colorectal is probably our next to really officially launch. We, I think, especially nationally now with the guidelines changing for colonoscopies to the age of 45 and we have a very diverse catchment area around New Haven. I think we really need to better meet the needs of our patients. And so really thinking about that colorectal both screening, we're, we're linked closely with our um, gastrointestinal colleagues and starting to develop more programming around that. And I think last time we spoke, you said, you know, as you move that you're expecting to recruit a lot of faculty to fulfill these needs. So how is that going? Have you been... Um, doing okay recruiting. You, you can never be done with recruiting. It's I've never done recruiting, but yes. So actually we have our, my first faculty recruit is starting in August. So her name is Dr. Laura Baum and she is joining from Vanderbilt. She was a trainee of Dr. Kathy Engs and Jordan Berlin, who I'm sure you know. Oh, and of course. Um, so we are happy. Um, we were someone, I think you might've seen this on Twitter. Someone coined the term like the, you know, Onco family tree. <laughs> and so Kathy and I are, you know, sharing, she's passing the baton. And so we're really excited. Laura is, um, has an MPH and is also palliative care trained. So we're 
So her area of research focus will be in health services. She has an interest also in opioid addiction and cancer patients. And I think that that plus her palliative care background and expertise will just be awesome for GI. Well, congrats. I mean, you're, you're just doing amazing. I mean, just in, in less than a year, I think what, I think you moved in July last year? Yeah, right? yeah. Yeah, this was, uh, I mean, tough moving in the pandemic, wasn't it? <laughs> in, indeed, yeah. It's My kids finished school today, so it kind of forced me to think about like the year and it, what a year. Oh, so. that was, that's late. They just finished? Yeah, yeah, late for us. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, mine, uh, yeah, mine, mine, well, mine are just, they just finished middle school. So they finished a couple of weeks ago. So I think, you know, we just finished the virtual ASCO meeting. You know, we just had a virtual ASCO meeting. I have to admit, it's very difficult to focus with me. For, I mean, I, I love, agree. <laughs> I mean, I love watching the presentations, honestly, and pausing the presentation, rewinding, looking at the slides. Don't get me wrong, but I can't. I just impossible. I don't know. So next year, I promise you, everybody's going to be in Chicago and we will meet in person. But I thought we, we will pick an, the neuroendocrine tumor area because I know how passionate you are about and obviously you're a world-renowned authority in it. And, you know, given that ASCO just happened, I thought it's a good opportunity. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the neuroendocrine tumor in general, why suddenly, like I feel there's more interest in it. I, don't, I can't say suddenly, but maybe I became more aware of it. Mm -hmm. And then what piqued your interest at the last ASCO meeting pertaining to neuroendocrine tumor that might be really more clinically applicable and patient relevant? Sure. So I will say the caveat is not a big year for net research at ASCO, but I'll, I'll mention a few, a few studies. And, and then maybe I'll mention also, we had a really exciting um, National Cancer Institute clinical trial planning meeting just in March. So since I spoke to you, so I can maybe speak to that also. Um, at ASCO, I'd say, um, maybe I'll mention three studies. So before the, that, before that, what, uh, I want to make yeah. sure folks know what neuroendocrine tumor is. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, not everybody who listens. Uh, and, and is it, I just became more aware of the neuroendocrine tumors, or is it more prevalent suddenly? Or I, like there's something over the past five years about neuroendocrine tumors that wasn't there 10 years ago when I was, I don't know. Right. No, I think all, all accurate. So neuroendocrine tumors, and actually we're now even really calling them neuroendocrine neoplasms because they include both the low grade, which are the WHO, World Health Organization, grade one and two neuroendocrine tumors that are more indolent, slow growing. And then they also include the high grade or grade three neuroendocrine carcinomas. So that distinction is important. It's sort of a nuance that like tumor versus carcinoma um, carcinoma implies that it's higher grade. And um, Jody, I think you're right that, you know, we have seen an increased incidence over the last three decades. Mm -hmm. I think that's in large part due to um, improved diagnostics, um, incidental findings on colonoscopy, you know, screening, you know, lung cancer screening scans, and I think better awareness of our pathologists, both in academics and community, where we're just better at diagnosing them. I'll remind the listeners that the term carcinoid used to be used to describe these tumors and actually means cancer-like. So it was really only, gosh, in the last 20, 15, 20 years that these were actually really recognized as cancers by the SEER registry. So some of the like 
distant epidemiologic data is just inaccurate because these weren't even coded as cancers um, a while ago. Hmm. So, there's, so a lot, I think, there's a lot of pathology in understanding the diagnosis. It, yes, and the pathology is confusing and the nomenclature has changed a lot over the last decade. But I think we're the neuroendocrine neoplasm, neuroendocrine tumor is where we are. We've sort of fallen away from using the word carcinoid. And then they can originate in almost any part of the body. So the most common are in the small intestine and in the lungs, but we also see them in the pancreas, that they can originate just about anywhere. And we now really, I think, understand better that these different primary sites have different biology. They're being studied now in separate clinical trials. So our FDA approvals are different for pancreatic net than they are for lung net, and the trials are being designed that way. That's really fascinating. So, so the neuro so you could have a drug that's approved for neuroendocrine tumor pancreas, not approved for neuroendocrine tumor lung. Yeah. So that so sunitinib is approved for pancreatic net and not approved for any others. So the site of origin matters in addition to the actual pathology. On the that's right. On the molecular level, are they also different or we don't have enough data on the molecular level? We, we think that they are different. I mean, I think we've seen in the last five years or so. So I think to your point, the timeline is probably the last decade. Um, you know, we had, hadn't had FDA approvals for years and years until about 2011, we started having some FDA approvals. So it's been in that time frame that I think we've seen more interest and uh, more awareness. But to your question on the molecular profiling, in general, the well-differentiated grade one and two neuroendocrine tumors are very mutationally quiet. They do not have a lot of somatic mutations. They generally have low tumor mutation burden. So on that you know, scale of tumor mutation burden, they're on the very low end. Um, for pancreatic nets, common somatic mutations are in the MEN or multiple endocrine neoplasia pathway. So somatic, not germline. Um, DAX and ATRX and the mTOR pathway. And what's interesting is that we, I think there was a paper, I'm trying to think of when that came out in the kind of also mid to like around 2010 um, that demonstrated that. But meanwhile, we already knew that mTOR pathway inhibitors like Everolimus were effective in this disease. So the clinical science really was way ahead of the basic biology understanding. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you know the drug works and then you go back and say, why is it working? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so before ASCO, and I know you're going to highlight three, three areas of interest at least, maybe they were not earth shattering, but to understand why you're highlighting these three areas before ASCO, what was, are there general themes into how we approach neuroendocrine tumors, whether they're metastatic or localized, I guess, I, you know? Yeah, you know, I think of... Um sort of key features that help us think about how to treat these patients. And then I can also mention what is sort of the hot area that would actually lead very well into talking about the clinical trial planning meeting. So, you know, we think about the things I mentioned already. So primary site, um, we think about the histology. So the grade, you know, is it localized or metastatic? Another really important factor is whether they produce hormones or not. That's called functional or non-functional. So the classic functional net is a is carcinoid syndrome. So that's a secretion of serotonin. We often measure that in the urine as urine 5-HIAA. Another key feature that really just in the last few years has become important is the presence or absence of a somatostatin receptor. 
So this is present on the surface of probably 80 to 90% of the cells for patients with the well-differentiated or low-grade neuroendocrine tumors. We can tell this by a gallium 68 PET scan. Um, this is sort of was, has been, it replaced the Octria scan, which was the older form of identifying you know, presence or absence of the somatostatin receptor. This matters because we actually now have a therapy for this called um, lutetium-177 dotatate. This is a beta-emitting peptide receptor radiotherapy. Um, I'll mention, just because you're, you're, you know, this is a less common disease than prostate cancer, but one of the hot um, trials at ASCO this year was a radioligand therapy for prostate cancer. So, you know, these have this radioligands have been around for a while. Lymphoma had some, you know, success in that many years ago, um, although may, maybe not used all that much now. Um, but I think that the radioligand therapies for solid tumors are really taking off. So I'll mention, I'd say that the kind of hot space right now in neuroendocrine tumors are, is this radioligand therapy. It's also called PRRT or peptide receptor radiotherapy. And our, um, the National Cancer Institute, as you know, has um, task forces or steering committees for diseases. So in GI, there's a GI steering committee. And then under that GI steering committee are a number of task forces for specific diseases. So I chair the Neuroendocrine Tumor Task Force. And every once in a while, we can host a clinical trial planning meeting. Um, the last one for NETS was held back in 2009. So about a decade later, we're hosting another one. Oh my God. It's a, I know. So, you know, it's funny. It was really sort of a full circle moment for me because I attended that as I think I was a senior fellow in <laughs> okay. 2009. And then I had the opportunity to lead this one. So it was um, really fun. And I think, you know, that that the manuscript was published from that. It really set the tone for the next decade worth of clinical trial priorities. So our task this time, the, the um, format has changed a little bit over the years, but we, our theme for this meeting was clinical trials in the era of PRRT for NETS. And so we had to really think about, you know, this was incredibly practice changing. This trial that led to the approval was called NETR1. And it, um, PRRT or ludotate was approved in 2018. So we've now had it available for about three years. Um, so for our, our listeners, it is an infusional therapy. It's given once every two months for four total treatments. And this is only for patients who have somatostatin receptor avid disease after progression on octreotide or lanreotide. And what was I gonna say there? I lost my train of thought, but uh, so that that's, it's a second line treatment basically. But Pam, a couple of questions before we go yeah. to other therapies for, and then the trials at, at ASCO or the abstracts. Um, if you have localized disease, I could imagine if somebody has localized neuroendocrine tumor in the colon, it's probably not difficult to resect. I mean, it's always- We resect, absolutely. Right. But if you have it in the pancreas, like if you have a neuroendocrine tumor in the pancreas and you need like a Whipple and all of that with, you know, are there, you know, like listening to you, I feel like the neuroendocrine tumors have a spectrum where some of them could be, you know, there and don't, they're not functional, they cause no trouble. Right. And some of them obviously cause trouble. Are you able today to, when you see a patient to tell, you know what, yours is, 
indolent, we can actually monitor. You know, I did lymphoma, so there's like this indolent lymphomas where you could just watch yes. and wait. Like, is there a watch and wait in neuronal tumors? You know, there is a little bit. Um, so I'll give you like, there are probably two scenarios. So for a patient with a pancreatic net that may be less than two centimeters, where we have a biopsy and it's proven to be a grade one, you know, very slow growing um, you're familiar with the term KI67, that proliferation rate. So if it's, you know, like one or 2% of the KI67, we might um, recommend monitoring. Also for patients with metastatic disease that have very low grade, low KI67, we might recommend monitoring frequently and then only initiating treatment at time that there's clear progression. So there are some situations like that. I would say more so for small intestine nets that tend to be more indolent than pancreatic nets that tend to be a little bit more aggressive. Got it. Okay. So, you know, ASCO wasn't earth shattering, but maybe there's a couple of uh, abstracts that just caught your attention. And uh, it doesn't sound from, from listening to you, nothing, management is not going to change. <laughs> no, no change in management. That's right. Yeah. So I had mentioned that the um, PRT, the 177 Ludo to take, got approved on the basis of the NETR1 clinical yeah. trial. So there was an update of overall survival on that clinical trial. So it was um, most, maybe I'll rewind a little bit, most of our neuroendocrine trials use a primary endpoint of progression-free survival. So that's different than a lot of other solid tumors. And that's, I'd say, primarily for the reason that because this is a more indolent disease, OS is a really impractical endpoint. Patients go on to get many subsequent therapies. It's just, it's too tough to use that as a primary endpoint for most NET trials. So NETR1 had an improvement of progression-free survival of the treatment arm compared, the control arm was octreotide. And there was a hazard ratio, I think of, you know, close to 0.3 or something. It was like a pretty remarkable hazard ratio. And the OS was not mature at the time of that initial report. So it is mature now. And it was not, there was not a statistically significant difference. The thought was there was about a 30 to 40% crossover rate for patients going from the control arm to getting the experimental Ludothera treatment. And so that was one explanation for that. But the difference was about a 12 month difference, or maybe, sorry, 12 to 14 months, I can't remember exactly. But I think that's a clinically meaningful difference in terms of overall survival for that patient population. So there was some debate on that, like, does that matter? Do we still believe the treatment? Is it still effective? And I think it's a really, it's an impactful treatment. The difference in PFS was about, you know, two and a half years. So it's, it's a meaningful treatment for these patients. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was one study. Yeah. And it will endorse the current practice. So it wouldn't. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. it, it won't change the current practice yeah. for sure. No, honestly, I, I would, I, I always say it's great that the authors and the investigators did provide longer term follow-up. I mean, there are many times where you don't see the longer term follow-up. I'm seeing more of that recently, including some of the negative, you know, somebody might interpret this as negative. I, I think this means it's just the same. Yeah, um, I agree. What else? So um, there was a study on surafatinib. And so this is another tyrosine kinase inhibitor, but it also had, it hits a target of colony stimulating factor 1R. So it is 
surafatinib is a relatively new drug and it's thought to have this combined angioimmune mechanism. It was um, studied in two large phase three clinical trials in both pancreatic net separate from extra pancreatic net, pancreatic net in China. Those reported out just prior to GI ASCO and were both positive. So showed a prolongation of progression-free survival in both of those settings. It is, and but we hadn't studied it in the US. So this study was a phase one, two study of surafatinib in the US. So it um, basically reconfirmed the same adverse event profile and also demonstrated sort of early efficacy in a small population. But that was what the FDA required in order to submit a new drug application in the US. So that NDA is sitting with the FDA right now. So was that a single arm phase one, two in patients who failed everything else? Let's see. They had to, it had to have been at least probably third line therapy. Octreotide and sunitinib maybe. And something, well, I don't think they could have had a prior TKI yeah. But they, um, I would have to double check the eligibility, Chadi, but it was definitely a later life therapy. Yeah, but does. they had to have demonstrated, you know, some level of safety and efficacy in the U.S. population yeah. before, but they could still take advantage of the phase three data that um, our colleagues in China produced. Yeah, it's interesting though. It makes you wonder because surfatinib seems to be working similar to sunitinib just um, in terms of mechanism of action. In the U.S., I believe most of you uh, specialists in that disease use sunitinib. So, um, yeah, it will be interesting to see what that means uh, because you would want to know if the drug works after sunitinib unless the company wants to bring it early on and compare it to sunitinib. But but, but today, first-line therapy is octreotide. Is it like it remains octreotide, right? Octreotide or lanreotide. So lanreotide is a very similar somatostatin analog. They're made by different companies. They have the exact same mechanism of action. They're administered slightly differently. So octreotide is an intramuscular injection and lanreotide is deep sub-Q. They're both given monthly for tumor control and um, they're used pretty interchangeably. And I would say those are pretty standard first line for the low-grade neuroendocrine tumors. How the caveat to that is if someone, especially a pancreatic net patient has um, bulky disease and they are symptomatic from tumor bulk or high volume disease, we might consider starting cytotoxic chemotherapy with Mm. temozolomide and capecitabine. So temozolomide and capecitabine are the, your go-to choice of chemotherapy. Okay. You you promised us a third app. Yeah. The third abstract. So the third abstract is a small phase one study. And I'm, I'm going to just use this as an example of how the radio ligand therapy is of interest. So this is with an alpha targeting therapy. I'm, I'm having to go back to physics chatty and like relearn. <laughs> I'm not a nuclear medicine specialist, but I'm having to learn a little bit about that. So this is with um, an agent called lead 212. So back to our periodic table and it emits sort of alpha particles. And um, so again, very early phase one study, but the potential, and it's still a somatostatin receptor targeting agent. So I sort of recently did, um, I did one of those um, GI oncology tumor board Tuesdays and sort of did a tutorial on why somatostatin receptors are the perfect target. And they're not really historically thought of as a molecular target, but they really are because we now have 
you know, these radiopeptide therapies, they're increasing and that can be alpha emitters or beta emitters. We also are starting to study antagonists to the receptor, their drug antibody conjugates, there's some bispecific antibodies. So this is a really active area of research. So, so that third abstract looked at the alpha emitter. You know, it's, it's really interesting. You know, one of the things that you highlighted how the radio labeled antibodies or the radio conjugates um, in lymphoma, I mean, I, goodness, I was a fellow, I, I, one of my- Me too, it was, I was a fellow too. I, I mean, I wrote- Bexar and Zevelin. I wrote a case report one time on Zevelin causing uh, secondary leukemia a long time ago. But they never really picked up. And I think the reason is, amongst many reasons, logistics were always difficult to figure out medical oncologists, nuclear physicists, radiation oncologists, who's doing what, who's administering where, and all of that stuff. As you think, I mean, I, know, I hope you're learning from the lymphoma community so you could do it much better than we did. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I mean, is this, is this usually discussed with you and your colleagues into when these make it, how, how are we going to do it? Yeah, I mean, I have to say one of my most interesting experiences was taking ludotate from a clinical trial setting. We had, I was at Stanford at the time, we had it open, and then operationalizing it to standard of care. And that was actually a really great educational experience for me. It was super complicated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it does require, I mean, really close um, collaboration with nuclear medicine and the you know, radiation safety team and the nursing infusion team. And I would say now, you know, most places are in a good rhythm of, of how to do this. And, and this is an outpatient treatment. So it does not require being in lead-lined rooms and overnight. Um, so it's a little bit easier to, because it can be done in the outpatient setting. Great. So now you you're running the program. So this is your administrative hat. You're doing the research, you're taking care of patients and how, I mean, do you see patients what two, three times a week or what's how, how right right now I'm seeing one day because of all these other hats that I'm wearing. All right. Excellent. And inpatient, you also have to do some inpatient work. I do. So when do you have time to do the other part, which you want to tell us about the diversity uh, new, well, first of all, Tell us what that means. And then when in the world do you have time for that again? <laughs> so in, in between times, um, but it actually, it really fills my bucket. So yeah, I'll, we'll talk about it. So it's, so I'm the vice chief of diversity, equity, and inclusion for medical oncology. And this is in the department of medicine. And this is a brand new initiative at Yale. And there is a DEI vice chief for every division in the department of medicine. Um, I think we're meeting in like a week or two for our first meeting. And I think it's to really broadly bring people together. And I think our Department of Medicine chair is, you know, been very committed to DEI. And I'm excited to be part of this. And I know I've I've talked with you about my sort of personal journey and interests in um, gender disparities that actually played a pretty prominent role at ASCO this year, equity broadly, but I think we had some um, great panels and conversations around gender equity in oncology at ASCO. And so I, I have found this to be, to be involved and to be thinking about solutions um, as really empowering. And um, I'm excited to be part of, you know, being, being part of the change. 
when that committee is formed, uh, I, be, I presume there's a larger mission for the department and then there's maybe a smaller mission for each division uh, because each one may be different. What are, I mean, are there, like what is the mission statement or the top three things that the whole committee is trying to accomplish? Um, and is there a timeline? I mean, I realize progress takes time, but what are the top three things, if you will, uh, that are outlined as part of the mission of this committee? So that, that's a good question. I'll come back in six months and, and talk to you more about it. But but I can I can tell you what I think are perhaps some low-hanging fruit and top priorities, just because I have started talking with people a little bit, but we haven't had our, our initial meeting yet. And I talk about this when I talk more broadly about DEI. I think really one of the first steps is collecting data. And I think that many of us in our own institutions, in professional societies, that's a really great place to start and like collect data on diversity metrics, collect data on sexual harassment, collect, like create a way to, to do that. Because I think if you don't know where you're starting, it's hard to know where you're going. And um, so I, that I think would be great. I, I know as a personal goal of mine, I think we really would like to increase the diversity of our faculty um, I think that, you know, in, in recent conversations I've had, um, I like, I don't know who, who said this, but, um, you know, instead of the saying, um, great minds think alike, you know, great minds actually think differently. And to really bring in people who have different opinions, different point of views is super important to, I think, teams. I think teams are more successful when those opinions are different. It's really interesting. I, I, I do believe the diversity in opinions is, um, is really critical and important. I also think that it does require people in that committee to be willing to have difficult conversations. Not all the conversations are comfortable. I agree. And, you know, I, I think sometimes what I found that people struggle with difficult conversations because you always... Like even if you want to try to have a difficult topic and you want to discuss, you have to put it on the table and just say, okay, this is a not an easy topic. Let's talk about, which means that there could be various views and so forth. And and I think, I don't know, my, my observation is not all topics are uh, discussed in easily anymore. Like there's a lot of difficulty. And have you noticed that? Have you, What are your thoughts there? I agree. And, and I also agree with your point that we have to, you know, lean into being a little uncomfortable. Um, and I think that's okay. I think we're going to have to do that some to solve some of these really challenging issues around diversity, whether it be race, um, gender, because some of those are going to be really hard. And, you know, I think I make also a really, I want to make a point that around the topic of intersectionality, because I think, um, you know, my sort of personal experience has all been around gender disparities, but I think that other women or other faculty who may have other characteristics that may be underrepresented or marginalized, whether it be BIPOC, LGBTQ+, disabilities, etc., I think ha can have additional burdens when these different characteristics intersect. And um, that, that concept of intersectionality was actually coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a, a law professor in New York. And I think that's just really important to think about as we're thinking about DEI efforts. And so I recognize what I, I bring to the table, you know, 
my perspective that may not be representative of everybody else's. I also think, you know, one of the important, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this because you, you have had your own personal experience, which we have talked about previously, and it's been publicized in the press and so on. But one of the things is, you know, if there are others who may challenge the opinion and say, well, my view of diversity and inclusion is different than your view. We both believe in that, but I would go around it differently. I think it's this too extreme. This is not extreme. I think we need to be, and my vision is we need to be open-minded to listen and understand so we can really um, do that. And, and I know you do, because I do know that, uh, you know, you listen and, and, but, but I don't know if everyone is able sometimes to listen to difficult contrarian opinions. Yeah, I, you make a very good point. You know, when I, when I've talked about this concept of disparities and, or sexual harassment in particular, um, I think that it also goes back to this broader concept of creating a respectful workplace. And then that goes to your, your, your comment about we have to be respectful when we're having disagreements and be come from a place of being open-minded. And I think that creating a culture of respect um, really matters to me. And I think is something that we all probably can do a better job of, I'd say, you know, in all industries, but, you know, in academics in particular. Yeah. And you represent oncology um, and you have, you said you have one person from each uh, division um, uh, and you, you're meeting. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about that meeting. But but in your own, obviously, you come in with some goals you would like to accomplish. And I'm pretty sure you're going to try to push for some of these goals as a member of the committee. So we're not going to spoil the surprise. We're not going to let the committee people know what you're going to tell them. But in general, <laughs> a year from now, where do you like things like, like tangible things, right? Like, where do you want in oncology, at least things to be? So I, I think we need to diversify our faculty um, for sure. I think there've been a lot of publications recently on how underrepresented black and minority physicians are. Um, I think that's super important. I think that we, you know, I, I, I think back to our ASCO meeting where the theme was equity for every patient. And I think that the flip side of that coin is diversity in our workforce because I think we won't be able to provide equitable care unless our, our workforce is more equitable. And um, so I'd like to really see some progress there. One really practical tip that, so we had a gender disparities panel at ASCO, but it was really focused on solutions. And one of our panelists is, was Dr. Hannah Valentine. She is a cardiologist. She was the inaugural um, chief of, I think it was like workforce diversity for the National Institute of Health, a position she held for, I think, over five years. And she instituted a lot of really interesting changes, one of which was a concept of cohort hiring. So hiring groups of individuals together to help create a sense of community and inclusion and diversity all together, really investing in those individuals, creating mentorship plans, and that worked very successfully at the NIH. So I think that is something that many institutions are now thinking about. Um, I would really like to bring um, kind of more talks around. So we, many institutions, Yale included, have, we have a grand rounds for our cancer center. I would like to bring conversations around um, these topics in, in really a more public forum. 
I'll give one example because this is um, something I spoke about. Actually, I think it was last week. I was, or was it earlier this week? This week's been a blur. I was on the NCCN um, policy summit this week and um, to about how to deliver equitable care. And um, so I was talking some about workforce diversity and I and about equitable patient care in particular. And I think we need to do a better job of taking care of our LGBTQ plus patients. And I think that there are some really sort of simple things that we can do that include more inclusive language and guidelines and more inclusive language for the way we talk about, I'll give an example, like for breast cancer care, you know, if we have trans women or men with breast cancer, like we shouldn't be having everything all pink and having them wear, rib, you know, robes with pink ribbons and, and saying that there's a husband support group for husbands. I think we just need to use more inclusive language. I've learned that from colleagues who've taught me that, and I'm still really learning in that space, but I think that's an opportunity. And so I want to bring conversations like that to our community. No, these are very important conversations. And I, and I would say it, it's important to bring the conversation. I, you know, my ask has always been, and one of the things I always try to promote in this podcast is I want people to disagree on opinions because the only way to figure out how you move forward is to understand um, various opinions, why there are disagreements, and how can you really move forward. So I you know, I often actually bring always two people of different views, you know, whatever, like, hey, let's talk about you know, those two things. And I moderate a discussion because I think people realize that there is, there are always different views of certain things. Like for example, I, I don't know, like, I don't know where the pink color for breast cancer came to be honest, but uh, yeah, when I was a fellow, it was just uh, all pink. So um, is it offensive, not offensive? I don't know, but you know, I think talking to, like if you are on the committee and somebody says, well, it's it's okay to keep it pink, and you say no, it's not. What like I I think having the two different views should always be welcome. I I feel it's going to be the yeah. only way to move forward. I agree. Yeah, yeah, and the other thing is, uh, do you, like do you have the um you know in terms of um, one of the things that I really think are important is from a, in fellowship and residency because a lot like. When I hear you talking about the recruitment, right? You want to get more faculty in, let's say, minority pop population, let's say, whether African Americans or or, uh, or other ethnic group or races. That has to start from residency and medical school. I agree. You're not going to find the faculty unless you have the fellows. So, um, are you working with the GME and like with medical schools, or is like how do you do the intersection there? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, we are linked with um, our Dean of Diversity for the School of Medicine, um, Dr. Darren Lattimore is, is excellent. And there's actually at Yale and probably in many institutions, we actually have a kind of brand new strategic plan around DEI. Um, I would say kind of more directly, I'm involved with fellow recruitment. Um, and we have also made a really deliberate effort at, at recruiting um, fellow candidates who are from underrepresented communities. And I think that's really exciting. So um, I'm a core faculty member for our fellowship. I do a lot of the interviewing and I completely agree with you. It's, you know, can, how can we 
um, attract and retain um, you know, great fellows across the board, but that also helps with our diversity efforts. Yeah, I mean, you need to get the pool of attendings, you need to get them trained. So that's, that, that's an issue. And I, I am seeing uh, improvement in that, actually. I mean, especially with seeing the fellowship uh, graduation and so forth, I'm seeing that. Um, if anybody could do it, it's you, Pam. <laughs> anybody could Thanks. do it, it's you. No, it's true. I mean, I, I think you know, partly because you did have a personal experience, honestly. And I think sometimes, um, let's face it, I think many times if you haven't been in the shoes of somebody, it's easy for you to criticize or say something, right? right. And, and you know, I mean, your story has definitely been very alarming. And I think you bring the voice, I always say like the voice of the patient into the thing. So you bring the voice of the individual who did suffer from something like this to into it. And I hope you have the resources to be able to do it because uh, it seems like uh, Yale is committed to this. Are you they are. I mean, I have percent effort towards this uh, this new activity. So it's. I, I think you're absolutely right. That's really key. We can't ask people to do DEI work without compensation. Are you seeing uh, similar efforts across various academic sites? And then are you seeing, take away the academic sites, there are healthcare systems, right? There are community hostels and so forth. Um, you may not know the answer to this, but are you seeing other efforts outside of Yale, outside of academia and so on? Yes, definitely. So I'd say, you know, broadly across academia. And I think that not only, you know, diversity is one piece of this, you know, the equity and inclusion piece of that acronym are also really important. Um, I can give a couple of examples. I'd say um, one area I'm also really interested in is industry relations and how we, how industry can play a role in this as well. So I've actually am quite involved with a number of industry partners around the gender disparities piece and have um, spoken, have, um, you know, am, am involved with an initiative right now to look at diversity of advisory boards. And so it's, I think that's exciting. There's more awareness around that. And then I just mentioned the NCCN. So NCCN is very powerful in terms of its kind of links with um, creating policy. And, and I think that I was on a panel with, you know, a woman who was the head of the, you know, sort of a, a Medicare payer from Tennessee and someone who also was a, a leader in a patient advocacy group. And it was a really exciting meeting. I'd encourage you or the listeners to look at that, but it's, um, you know, I'm personally becoming more interested in, in policy change because that's also a way that we can enact some big changes. So I, uh, my last question to you, you've been, yeah. very, you've been very generous with your time, by the way, I, <laughs> I'm very great. I know it's also late on the East coast, but my last question, because five years from now, do you think you'll be doing this full time? Oh, the DEI yes. stuff? Um, <laughs> you know, it's a good question. I have, you know, what's interesting is I, I, I've joked about this with, with friends before. I feel like I've kind of gone through a bit of a midlife crisis <laughs> where I, you know, I really like deeply need some social advocacy in my life. And I'm, I think it's, some of that's from personal experiences and some of that is through maturity and realizing what matters to me. And like, it's interesting kind of the kind of arc <laughs> that I've taken because this is now very much part of my professional persona and I'm really proud of that. 
Um, so I, I don't know. I'm dodging your question a little bit. But you are, you uh, are, you are, and here I am. I <laughs> here I am on the record. I predict that Dr. Pamela Coons <laughs> in five years she's going to be doing. I don't know where you're going to be doing it, but I think you bring a lot of passion, expertise, and and again, I mean, it's it's as you know, again, patient care is different. But I honestly see you taking a different trajectory. Could be in policy. I, I don't know where. But I see. Who knows? I see you doing this full time. I would say my uh, prediction will be five to six years. We we, we shall see. But it, it certainly is. Um, it's incredibly motivating. I'm really happy to have part of this as kind of what I'm doing. And I think what I am trying to ask of of colleagues is that we all try to look through the lens of DEI and what we're doing. Well said, and it's really a great end to the to the podcast, Pam. I'm, I'm very grateful that you uh, you're always generous. You always uh, give me and the listeners some time of your schedule, and uh, uh, we're going to be calling upon. Is this going to be a yearly thing? Just so you okay, know. that sounds gonna be like this is a longitudinal follow up. This is <laughs> that's right. <laughs> okay, thank you so much. Thank you, Chadi. Okay, folks, I'd like to thank you for tuning in and being part of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Pamela Coons on this podcast. I hope you learned about neuroendocrine tumors, about what she is developing at Yale and Connecticut when it comes to the GI oncology program across a very large network. And also, I hope you learned on her efforts in diversity, equity, and inclusion and what we can actually do to improve on these fronts. Please let me know how I'm doing and how I can do better. You can direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You can also visit my website, shadinabhan.com, and message me there and let me know how we can uh, improve or send some ideas into what we can do differently. I'm very grateful for your input, for your opinions, for your ideas. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from Khalil Gibran. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. Until next time, take care.